All right, well, I have swapped out my guitar for this fancy microphone, so we are ready to go. Um, so if you have a Bible close to you, go ahead and grab it, and we're going to open up to Zechariah chapter 6. Uh, if you turn to the New Testament book of Matthew and then turn back a couple books, you'll find Zechariah chapter 6. And uh, I've titled this sermon, Heaven Meets Earth, the charging chariots. Heaven meets earth, the charging chariots. And this is part nine in our ongoing series through Zechariah. And uh, over the last few sermons uh, in Zechariah, we've been looking at the night visions Zechariah received from God in which he was shown uh, symbolic images of the ways heaven will be meeting earth and God will be coming to redeem his people. And I have really enjoyed looking at these with you guys, and hopefully you have as well, and have been getting some good things out of them. Um, but before we look at our final night vision this morning, I want to give just a brief recap of the seven night visions that led up to this one. Um, so in the first night vision of the man among the myrtles, we saw Christ seated upon a red horse, standing among myrtle trees, which represented life and paradise and restoration. He was standing among myrtle trees in a deathly deep, an abyss of sorts. And what we talked about in that sermon was that this was symbolic of where the Judeans were. They were in a kind of existential pit. But these myrtle trees springing up from this deathly deep communicated to them, to the Judeans, that their restoration had already begun and that paradise was very near because God, in whose presence is abundant life, was with them there. And then behind Christ were other colored horses which he sent out to patrol the earth and they came back with a report that all the earth remained at rest which as we talked about was a kind of ungodly peace that the nations were resting in, which provoked the Lord to great anger. And then in the second night vision of the horn-crushing craftsmen, we saw four horns that were said to have scattered the people of God. And what was interesting is that God was sending out four craftsmen to destroy these horns. And we talked about how this horn and craftsman imagery uh, was pointing us to the four-horned tabernacle altar upon which animal sacrifices were made and which was constructed by the craftsmen and how ultimately this was all a metaphor for the cutting off of false worship and the restoration of true worship. Uh, not only among the worldly and heaven-challenging nations, but also among God's own people whose own false worship and rebellion had scattered their souls into exile. And then in the third night vision of the man with the measuring line, we saw Christ going to measure the heavenly city to come, the new Jerusalem. And then he was calling his people to get out of the doomed city of man and to run into the city of God because the Lord had roused himself from his holy dwelling and was coming to make war against every worldly and heaven-challenging power and nation of the earth. And then in the fourth night vision of the royal reclother, we saw Joshua the high priest 
standing before the judgment seat of Christ, clothed in filthy garments, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. But then Satan was rebuked, and Joshua was reclothed in pure garments, which was symbolic of his sin being taken away. And then two prophecies were given regarding the eternal removal of sin, which would come through the ministry of Christ, the royal reclother himself. And then in the fifth night vision of the mighty menorah oil, we saw a 49-lamped menorah being supplied with golden oil flowing from two olive trees. And we talked about how this was pointing us forward to Christ's outpouring of the Spirit upon his church. And, and the key verse in this night vision was chapter 4, verse 6, which, which says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then there were various prophecies given regarding things that God would do among his people by his Spirit. And then in the sixth night vision of the covenant curse scroll, we saw a giant flying scroll containing covenant curses on both sides, soaring over the land of Judah, seeking out covenant breakers like a heat-seeking missile, and then swooping down to destroy their idle houses, which had apparently been built with uh, wood that had been stolen because it was, it was supposed to be designated for the rebuilding of the temple. And we talked about how this was indeed an act of God's disciplinary judgment, but even more, it was an act of God's gracious redemption as he was crushing the, uh, the idols that had a death grip on the Judeans' hearts and were crippling their walks with God. And then in the seventh night vision of the Shinar sender, we saw wickedness personified as a woman being carried away in a basket by two winged women from Judah to the land of Shinar, Babylon, where they would build a house for it there. We talked about how at the time of Zechariah's prophesying, Babylon didn't even exist anymore. But God was using Babylon, Shinar, uh, as a symbol of and synonym for wickedness which, as we talked about, is the case elsewhere in Scripture as well. And so the message of this night vision was that God was prepared to give the unrepentantly wicked over to their own wickedness and sin, essentially saying, fine, have it your way. Go and sin, and you will be lost apart from me. You will die apart from me. And now this morning, we'll see that Zechariah's final night vision brings a satisfying resolution to all of the tension and disharmony and longings and anticipation that we were confronted with in the previous night visions. Uh, but before we read it, let me pray for us and for our time here together. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord God, help our minds to grasp the glorious truths and realities that this night vision communicates. And Lord, help us to see Jesus afresh this morning, who is our only hope. Amen. All right, let's read 
Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. This is his final night vision. Again, I, Zechariah, lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country, the white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, Go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. So this final night vision closely parallels the first night vision in several ways and is symbolically describing the eschatological or end times day of the Lord, the final judgment. And we have kind of an interesting outline here. Uh, verses 1 through 7 describe the pre-judgment scene, the commencement of the judgment. And verse 8 describes the post-judgment scene, the result of the judgment. So notice that there's no intra-judgment scene. Uh, there's no scene actually describing what happens during the final judgment. And notice that God's enemies aren't even mentioned uh, directly. They're only implied. And so this night vision is forcing us to focus all of our attention and consideration upon God himself. And the first thing we see in the night vision is four chariots coming out from between two mountains of bronze. And verse 5 gives us a clue about what these mountains represent, saying that these chariots have come from presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. And the actual Hebrew here says that they've come from their station or from their post before the Lord of all the earth. So these two bronze mountains have something to do with the presence of God. And this is reinforced by the fact that bronze is often associated with the presence of God in Scripture. And for the sake of time, I'll just point you to Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 7, Daniel chapter 10 verse 6, Revelation chapter 1 verse 15. And God's presence is often described as a mountain in Scripture. And I'll just point you to Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 13 and 14, Psalm chapter 24 verse 3, and Isaiah chapter 14 verse 13. And something else that's interesting is that the entrance to Solomon's temple, which, as you remember, is the place on earth where God's special presence dwelt among his people in the Old Testament, the entrance to Solomon's temple had two giant bronze pillars, which 
very well may be what these two giant bronze mountains were symbolic exaggerations of. And if that's the case, then these two bronze mountains would represent a kind of boundary gate or portal between heaven and earth, just as the entrance to Solomon's temple was a kind of portal which took earthly man into God's space. And this interpretation makes perfect sense because these four chariots which have come from the presence of God are now passing between these two mountains to go throughout all the earth into man's space. Now let's talk about these four chariots. Uh, So chariots in the ancient world were military vehicles, uh, which were pulled by horses, which carried warriors. And in the Bible, when God sends out his heavenly chariots, they are almost always for the purpose of war. For example, in 2 Kings chapter 6, we saw, uh, we see God's chariots of fire appear on the mountains all around Elisha and his servant to protect them from the Syrian army. And Psalm chapter 68 talks about God's thousands upon thousands of chariots that he uh, commands to strike down his enemies. And in Isaiah chapter uh, 66, there's a prophecy regarding the final judgment, which begins in verse 15. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. So chariots almost always equal war in the Bible. And they definitely equal war here. One commentator writes, Here in this night vision, the symbolism of the chariots signifies an advent of God as divine warrior, advancing in wrath against his enemies. These are chariots of wrath. It is the day of the Lord. Now let's talk about these different colored horses. Um, So you may recall that we also saw some different colored horses in Zechariah's first night vision. If you remember, they were red sorrel, which is a uh, reddish chestnut color, and white. And in that sermon, we talked about how there weren't any um, good biblical reasons to assign any, um, you know, particular symbolic meanings to those colors. But in this night vision, the horse's colors are a little different. They're red, black, white, and dappled, which is a spotted gray color. And I can't help but recognize that there is a compelling parallel between these horses and the horses in Revelation chapter 6. And if you're familiar with that passage, it's the passage where uh, we see Christ opening the scroll with the seven seals. And as uh, each of the first four seals are opened, a different horse and rider comes out. Um, and, And so... In Revelation chapter 6, we see first it's a white horse whose rider has a bow and a crown, and and he came out to conquer. And the second was a red horse whose rider had a sword to shed blood in war. And the third was a black horse whose rider had weighing scales in his hand and spoke of famine. And the fourth was a pale horse, not dappled like we see here in Zechariah, but pale. And his rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill. And of course, there are, you know, different interpretations about who these riders represent and 
when these things will take place, if they haven't taken place already. Um, but what is absolutely clear here is that this is a terrible judgment, which is also clear in Zechariah's night vision as these horses are described as strong, verses 3 and 7, and impatient, verse 7, irritably chomping at the bit to pull these war chariots to where they need to go. And so some commentators see an intentional connection between these two visions and their horses because, you know, they're colored similarly and they're both involved in a terrible judgment. Uh, Now we're given three descriptions of where these war chariots are going. Verse 5 says that they're going to the four winds of heaven. And verse 6 says the chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. And verse 7 says that they went throughout all the earth. But look closer with me at verse 6, because there's something important we have to see here. Verse 6 says, The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them. And the dappled ones go toward the south country, and there's no mention of the red horses. And notice that there, that neither uh, east nor west is mentioned, just north and south. In fact, the text seems to be saying that both the black and white horses went toward the north country. Now, why would that be if they went throughout all the earth? I mean, you'd expect the four of them to go each of the four directions, north, south, east, and west, right? Well, something that may be relevant here is that we know that all of Israel and Judah's major historic enemies came from the north and south. Uh, From the north, Assyria, Babylon, and now Medo-Persia, and from the south, Egypt. So it it makes sense that special attention would be given to both the north country and south country because that's where Israel and Judah's major historic enemies came from. But the one thing that is most importantly relevant here is what we learn in verse 8, which is the post-judgment scene, which says, Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. So this final verse tells us that the result of this judgment is the spirit set at rest in the north country. That is the post-judgment scene, which is strange because we know that the chariots went throughout all the earth, symbolizing God waging war against all his enemies. And so... Why does this night vision end with, you know, after the dust has been settled and and this worldwide judgment has occurred, the spirit is now being said to be at rest, not over all the earth, but specifically in the north country. Why would the text specify just a piece of the earth that the spirit was now at rest over? Well, here's why. In the Old Testament, the north country refers to Babylon. The north country is Babylon. But here's what's interesting. 
at the time of Zechariah's prophesying, Babylon doesn't even exist anymore because it was conquered by the Medo-Persians about 20 years earlier. But we talked about this in the last sermon. Throughout the story of Scripture, Babylon, the north country, also Shinar, it's all the same place, Babylon became a symbol of and synonym for wickedness. Uh, this is why, for example, when uh, God says to the Judeans in, in Zechariah's third night vision, he says, up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. God says that to the Judeans when they had been back in Judah, in Zion, for 18 years, and Babylon didn't even exist anymore. He was using Babylon metaphorically to make a point about their spiritual condition, essentially saying that by their persistent unrepentance and wickedness and sin that they weren't really returned from exile because they hadn't, they hadn't yet returned to him. And so I think, I think Zechariah saw both the chariots with the black horses and the white horses going toward the north country because the north country is being used here as it's used elsewhere in scripture as a symbol of and synonym for the totality of existing wickedness. And so in this symbolic imagery of God's war chariots conquering the north country, and the spirit being set at rest in the north country, the picture, the idea, is that the spirit is conquering and being set at rest over wickedness itself. So this night vision seems to be envisioning not only the ultimate triumph of God's purposes in the world and the final defeat of his enemies, but the final defeat of sin itself, which is the very thing that makes men his enemies. One commentator writes, here is a vista of the world to come. The holy war is over. At the great battle of Armageddon, which, by the way, uh, Armageddon is the Greek uh, transliteration of the Hebrew, well, the Septuagint, Armageddon. So it's actually Armageddon. Um, at the great battle of Armageddon, the Lord has triumphed. He has eliminated the hostile forces. Sabbath time has come. And then he continues, and this is a little complicated, so listen carefully, and, and I'm paraphrasing some of this a bit. What is signified here in verse 8, is the Spirit's Sabbath. The Spirit enthroned over the world at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, was the quintessential Sabbath reality. And then in the Creator's seventh day rest, this quintessential Sabbath reality was translated into temporal dimensions, which just means dimensions of time which was symbolically replicated in the ordinance of the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. The Sabbath ordinance, in turn, is the type that points to man's eschatological, end times, arrival 
at the consummation of kingdom history, the antitype, eternal Sabbath. The setting of God's spirit at rest in the north country is the dawning of this eternal Sabbath where the spirit is enthroned in the new heaven and new earth. So after that very wordy paragraph, here's a little summary. The Spirit's Sabbath rest over the original creation in the beginning, which we see temporally translated in the Creator's Seventh-day Rest, in which we see symbolically replicated in the ordinance of the Sabbath for man, this is pointing us forward to the eternal Sabbath rest, which will dawn upon the new creation, the new heaven and new earth, the new Eden, the paradise restoration, which we talked about a lot in Zechariah's first night vision. It's the reunion, the rejoining of God's space and mankind's space. It's the eternal state that we sing about in the third verse of the song, Joy to the World. No more let sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. In this new creation to come, in which there will be no more curse, no more fallenness, no more death, no more sin, the Spirit will be at rest over it because his work will then be complete. Because, of course, the Spirit's work is primarily to produce holiness in the people of God, which is why he's called the Holy Spirit. But in this world to come, where there's no more curse, there's no more convicting, no more regenerating, no more sanctifying, no more of any of that curse-reversing spirit work. In the new creation, the spirit is, he sits enthroned and at rest because his work is complete and his people are now glorified, eternally delivered from their sins. And, and nowhere is the curse found, only blessing. And Sabbath time has come forever. This is ultimately, ultimately what Zechariah's final night vision is pointing us forward to. That great day when heaven meets earth, which is the title of this whole sermon series. That great day when heaven meets earth and newness, restoration, final freedom, rest comes to all things awaiting deliverance from the curse and its effects, which again, will come by the final judgment, which will be the striking of the final nail into sin's coffin and the final crushing of the serpent's head and the final death of death itself, which is the last enemy to be destroyed, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty six. And so, do you... Feel the point of this night vision? Do you feel it? Because the point of it is to inspire hope, to inspire hope in the people of God as they await this final 
deliverance. And I should say that when I say the word hope, I am not talking about a kind of airy, flimsy, uncertain wish. Like, I hope there's a good parking spot close to the entrance. Or, I hope this new TV show will be interesting. I am talking about a rock-solid and confident expectation that God will do what he says he's going to do. That's the kind of hope I'm talking about here. And I love what John Piper says about the word, uh, or what he says about hope in his new book, Coronavirus in Christ. He says, the object of hope is future, but the experience of hope is present, and the experience of hope is powerful. Hope is a present power. Let me read that one more time. It's so good. He says, the object of hope is future, but the experience of it is present, and the experience of it is powerful. And so hope, hope is a present power. And the simple purpose of this night vision is to infuse the people of God with the present power of hope as they await this final deliverance that is coming in the future. And for the Judeans who first received this night vision, they were awaiting deliverance in many ways, and some of which we can certainly relate to. They were awaiting deliverance from the constant threat and terror of their national enemies. And they were awaiting deliverance from their political and economic instability. And they were awaiting deliverance from, from their paralyzing uncertainty about the future. And they were awaiting deliverance from, man, just sinking despair and also their stains of sin. And the message and application of this night vision is hope in God. Hope in God. Hope in the one who commands a multitude of chariots and heavenly hosts, who breaks the bow and shatters the spear and whose power is greater than the enemy. Hope in the one who is all-knowing and all-powerful, who is sovereign and in control and who is on our side and, and who's, who has a wonderful plan that by his grace includes us. Hope in the one who is faithful and true and who loves us and who has promised to never leave or forsake us. Hope in the one who is setting his spirit at rest in the north country over all wickedness and over the evil one and over death itself. Hope in the one who is making all things new. This creation which now groans awaiting redemption and our bodies which now bruise and bleed and ache and die and our hearts which now give birth to many evils and sins. Hope in the one who is reversing all of the effects of the dreadful curse of sin. Now I need to be clear that the only people who can hope in God in these ways the only people who can have any hope that they won't be counted among God's enemies 
in the end and won't be swept away right along with them and with the curse itself. The only people who can have any hope of being a part of the new creation and the eternal Sabbath rest to come are those who have repented of their sin and have rested in the one who came from heaven to earth, from God's space into man's space, passed between the mountains of bronze, as it were, on a judgment mission. Not a mission of judgment against the world, but a mission of judgment whereby the righteous wrath of God that the world justly deserved fell on him. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says that this man became a curse for us. He bore the curse of our sin upon the tree, upon the cross. But the curse which leads to death could not hold him down because he is the possessor of the power of a life that is stronger than death itself. And in his resurrection, we see a picture of what we, who've rested in him, will experience on that last day when our bodies will be resurrected unto new and everlasting life. And of course, this heaven-sent, curse-bearing, grave-conquering man was no mere man, but was the incarnate Son of God and Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, who came the first time to save his people from sin's power and consequence through the first great judgment in which he was judged and destroyed for sin, and who is coming again to save his people from sin's very existence through the final judgment in which he will be the judge and destroyer of sin. And so, to put it simply, the only people who can have any hope of surviving the final judgment and the death sentence that their sin has incurred are those who, have, who, who know that Jesus was already judged in their place and who, through repentance and faith, have been taken off death row, Jesus having died in their place. And for those people, the final judgment has become now a day to look forward to rather than a day to fear because for them, it's the day their sin will be removed forever rather than the day they themselves will be removed forever, which will be the case for those apart from Christ who are still in their sins, who, who are not saved because they have not cast themselves upon the mercy of Jesus, but have just persisted unrepentantly in their wickedness and sin, which leads to death, and whom I would strongly encourage this morning, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, the Savior, who brought grace and forgiveness and who was judged and destroyed for our sin. Come to Jesus before Jesus comes to us again as the judge and destroyer of sin, bringing justice and wrath. 
forsake your sinful ways and submit yourself under Jesus' lordship and hope in him. Hope in him because I've got to tell you, you will never find real hope apart from him. You will never find real hope apart from him. Sure, things will promise hope in this life, but they can never provide true hope which doesn't just come and go, doesn't just wax and wane, doesn't just ebb and flow, leaving you let down and left empty, failing to make good on its promises, leaving you always on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing you think this time will be different. This time will deliver. Here's something truly different. Here's something that truly delivers. Here is true hope. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. It's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'm asking you, come to Jesus today, all who labor and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. There's a great passage in John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress, where Christian, the main character, has been carrying a great and heavy burden upon his back. And of course, this was a metaphor for the, the weight of his sin and guilt that he carried and, and which weighed him down and which threatened his life at every turn in which he was unable to rid himself of. Um, but at a certain point in the story, the heavy-laden Christian comes upon a cross on a hill. And immediately, by simply looking to the cross, his burden is loosed from his shoulders and falls off of his back and rolls down the hill into a grave. And as a result, Christian leaps with joy three times and then sings a song of deliverance saying, Thus far I did come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place is this. Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here be the, sorry, must here the burden fall from off my back? Must hear the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed grave, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame. This is the kind of hope that Jesus gives. It's a burden-lifting hope. It's a wonder-filling hope. It's a hope that makes men dance. It's a hope that makes men sing. It's a hope that I am desperate for you to have and am pleading with you to see. And so today, come to Jesus. All you who labor and are heavy laden, come to Jesus by repenting of your sin, which is to turn away from your sin and to put your faith in Jesus, rest in Jesus, and he will forgive you of all your sin. He will cleanse you of all your sin, and he will give rest to your weary soul. 
loosening your burdens that they may fall off of you into the grave. Now, for those of us who have rested in Jesus, the message and application of Zechariah's final night vision is simple. Hope in God. It's that simple. Hope in God. And in the few minutes we have left, I want to try to help us get this concept to sink in a bit further by um, giving just two examples of things that happen when we hope in God, okay? Two examples of things that happen when we hope in God. And obviously there are, you know, many more than just two things that happen when we hope in God. Um, I'm just trying to keep my examples super narrow and close to the context of our passage. So I'll phrase it this way. When we hope in God, number one, our fears melt away. When we hope in God, our fears melt away. Uh, I talked earlier about hope being a present power, and it's on this very topic of fear and its opposite courage that we see some great examples in Scripture of the power of hope. Uh, For example, the prophet Elisha, whom we already mentioned, he experienced the present power of hope in 2 Kings chapter 6. When his servant got up in the morning and went outside and saw that the entire city was surrounded by the Syrian army and then freaked out and said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Elisha, who hoped in God, was, was able, excuse me, Elisha, who hoped in God, was able to say, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and asked God to open his servant's eyes, and together they saw that the the mountains all around them were covered with God's chariots of fire. And Moses, in Exodus chapter 14, experienced the present power of hope. When he and the Israelites' backs were up against the Red Sea, they were at a dead end, and Pharaoh's army and horses and chariots were fast approaching. Moses who hoped in God, was able to say, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. And sure enough, God parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could safely cross, and then brought the waves back, crashing down upon the pursuing Egyptians, destroying them all. And Caleb and Joshua, in Numbers chapter 14, experienced the present power of hope. Uh, When the Israelites were terrified to enter in the promised land because there were giants there, which made them feel like tiny grasshoppers. And all the congregation grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and raised a loud cry together, saying, The Lord has just brought us out here to die. Let us choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. Caleb and Joshua, who hoped in God, were able to say, Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them, 
And there are many other passages in Scripture reinforcing this idea, uh, Zechariah's final night vision being one of them, this idea that the people of God ought not fear because the battle belongs to the Lord. And he will fight for his people. And he will win the day. And he has proven it over and over and over again. In fact, this is pretty amazing. Did you know that the most repeated command in Scripture is, do not fear? Isn't that amazing? That is the most repeated command and exhortation in God's word. Do not fear. And why is it? Because we are so prone to forget. We so often forget that God is the giant, slaying, sea-separating, chariot-commanding, faithful and true defender of his people. And that God is just and therefore will not let sin go unpunished, especially the son done against his beloved children. And so he says in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 25, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Let me do it, and he will. And this is such a great word of encouragement for us who find ourselves in, in similar situations where, for example, we have to go somewhere that we know our enemies will be, and we're afraid or when our enemies are pursuing us and we don't know where to turn, or when our enemies are surrounding us and we do not see a way out. It is so encouraging to remember, to know that even in the worst circumstances, the Lord is near and the battle belongs to him and he will deliver his people from all evil. And we may experience that supernatural deliverance almost immediately, as Elisha and his servant did, as very suddenly the mountains all around them were covered with God's chariots of fire. Or we may experience his deliverance after some time, as Caleb and Joshua did, as it was 40 years before they were able to enter and occupy the promised land. But regardless, the promise is that deliverance will come to the people of God. And if not in our lifetime, certainly at the final judgment. And we can know this is true because God has already begun to deliver us. As he has delivered us from the power and consequence of sin already through Jesus, the Lamb of God. We are only waiting for the final defeat of sin. And we know that sin is going out, not with a bang, but with a whimper, because Christ isn't returning as a lamb. He's returning as a lion. Hope is a fear-melting power. And number two... When we hope in God, our failures don't destroy us. When we hope in God, our failures don't destroy us emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. <clears throat> and this point is really where the gospel really 
it just becomes everything because I, I don't even know how to introduce this point other than just to say, Jesus, 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 because how else are we to not be destroyed when we try to follow God we try to obey God. We try to fight against our flesh, but then we just totally blow it. How are we to not be destroyed by our failures apart from the good news of the gospel that Jesus, the righteous one, became a curse for us and died in our place to give us his righteousness, which means that we are now judged not on the basis of what we have done, which surely would condemn us every day and every hour. Rather, we are now judged on the basis of what Jesus has done alone and such that there is now no condemnation for those who are in him, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. See, if we don't hope in God, if we don't hope in God, one of maybe three things will happen in our walk with him. Either, number one, we'll do good, and we'll be puffed up with pride, thinking we're pretty awesome, which makes God sick. Because it, it's, it's essentially mocking his holiness, which we cannot even fathom, let alone attain, because we are so unholy in and of ourselves that even our righteous deeds, even our good works are as filthy rags apart from him, Isaiah says. And it empties the cross of its power, which is the sole basis of our justification, our being made right in his eyes. And it steals credit from the Holy Spirit, who is the one at work within us producing good works. Or number two, we'll fail and we'll be utterly destroyed, which also makes God sick because even though our failures hurt, and are embarrassing and make us feel miserable. God doesn't want us to be destroyed by them because Jesus already was. Jesus literally was destroyed for our failures. Further, being destroyed by our failures is actually a failure itself because it fails to believe that Jesus actually accomplished what he accomplished. For example, it's a failure to believe that when Jesus says we're forgiven, that we're really forgiven. It's a failure to believe that when Christ cried upon the cross with his final breath, it is finished, that it really was finished. Being destroyed by our failures makes us out to be the failed savior of ourselves when all along we were never the savior. And we never could be, which is why Jesus came. Or number three, we'll fail and we'll think, eh, it's not really that bad. And Jesus died for it, so, and then with that, with that attitude, we'll just continue in our sin. Which might be the thing that makes God the most sick because it's essentially looking to Jesus and saying, yeah, what he did for me, isn't that great? Yeah, he, he, he bore the righteous wrath of God in his body that was against me. Yeah, whatever. Those sins that Jesus suffered and bled and died for, 
I'm just going to keep doing those things. And that is not someone who knows Jesus at all. That is not the attitude of a person who is filled by the Holy Spirit. That is not the person who will escape on the day of judgment. Though they say, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and that and all these things in your name? That is not a person who longs for the new heaven and new earth. So that's the negative case, but here's the positive case. When we do hope in God, when we do hope in God, we are moved to humility before him rather than pride and dependence upon him rather than self-reliance and trust in him rather than trust in ourselves and thankfulness to him rather than self-entitlement and peace from him rather than anxiety through tirelessly trying to keep up the unattainable perfect image. We're made to see how wonderful Jesus is and are moved to glorify and worship him. We are not destroyed by our failures or are tempted to base our salvation on our sanctification. Rather, when we sin, we're, re- we're reminded afresh of the Savior who was already destroyed for our sin and who alone is our salvation. He himself is our salvation. And we're given power to fight against our flesh, knowing that the war is already won. Christ has already secured our victory. His tomb is empty. He has triumphed over sin's power and consequence already. And we can look forward to the final judgment where Christ will triumph over sin's very existence forever. And the curse will be reversed forever. And all things awaiting deliverance will be made gloriously new forever. And that eternal Sabbath rest that awaits us will be enjoyed by us forever. Hope in God is a failure-freeing power because it frees us, even in our failures, to claim the victory and righteousness and now no condemnation that is ours in Christ Jesus. Hope in God frees us, even at our worst, to preach the gospel to ourselves, to our heavy-laden and weary souls, that we might find rest in Jesus. Hope in God frees us to dance and to sing songs of deliverance even as we await our final deliverance like we did in the song we sang earlier. Christ the sure and steady anchor while the tempest rages on. When temptation claims the battle and it seems the night has won, deeper still then goes the anchor. Though I justly stand accused, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. What amazing words we sing. 
And so Zechariah's final night vision reminds us that the battle belongs to the Lord and he will win the day triumphantly and he will deliver us from all mortal ills. And today, all of us, all of us listening to this now are awaiting deliverance. We're awaiting this very deliverance in many ways right now. And my prayer for us this morning is, is simple. My prayer is that as we wait for this final deliverance, that we will wait in the fear-melting, failure-freeing power that is produced within us when we hope in God. That is my prayer for all of us here this morning. Let's pray together now, though. Lord God, what a wonderful word of hope from this final night vision that that you are setting your spirit at rest in the north country over all wickedness and sin. Oh Lord, our hearts long for this day when you will come out once again from between the proverbial mountains of bronze to make war against sin and Satan and death, putting them to death forever and then ushering in the new creation and the eternal Sabbath rest. Oh Lord, as we wait for this great and awesome day of deliverance, teach us how to wait with hope in every sphere of life for your glory alone. Amen. All right, go in the grace of God and in the hope that we have in him.